This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. The prophet Micah wrote, But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. We're pleased to have Mike Shanahan on the show today to talk about his book, Ladders to Heaven, The Secret History of Fig Trees. Mike Shanahan is a British biologist and writer whose work focuses on rainforests, climate change, biodiversity, and related issues. Shanahan has written for Nature, The Economist, and other publications, and has won an award for the best science writing on the World Wide Web. Mike Shanahan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Renee. Thanks for having me on the show. Figs are a romantic and even erotic fruit. Tell us how you fell in love with fig trees and how that changed your life. It was a lucky break, really. I was a student at the University of Leeds doing a master's degree in biodiversity and conservation. And everyone had to do a project. But most of the projects on the list were things in the UK that were not so interesting to me. Uh, One, however, was based in Indonesia. And I was chosen to do that project. And I was very excited at, at the prospect of going to Indonesia and looking at why people are capturing wild birds and keeping them in cages in their houses as pets and what this means for the populations of the wild species. But at the last moment, the project fell through because the um, the team in Indonesia wanted a social scientist, not a biologist. And my supervisor, who happened to be a fig biologist, uh, felt guilty. And he decided to ask a few of his colleagues in different places if anyone could host me. And the answer came yes from a guy called Rhett Harrison in Borneo. And off I went. I spent uh, two months working in a rainforest in the Malaysian part of Borneo in a national park that had about 80 different species of figs growing in the uh, in the forest there. And that was it. I was, I was suddenly hooked onto these plants and uh, I spent my time there studying what animals were feeding on the different kinds of figs and how how these figs were varied and diverse in the in the way they produced their figs that led on to a phd so i spent another three years in the same place and also working a little bit in papua new guinea as well and and by then it was the point of no return i would say well uh in a setting very very far away from borneo uh we learned from scholars of religion that the um, mythical fruit of the tree of knowledge in the biblical Garden of Eden was not, as most people tend to think, an apple, but rather a fig from a fig tree. Uh, I was very interested and surprised to learn from your book that figs are also highly featured in many other cultures, 
uh, not just to Judaism and Christianity and uh, Islam uh, with the Garden of Eden story. Tell us about what figs mean in different cultures. They mean so many different things. So many parallels with the Garden of Eden story. There are, there are figs featured in the creation myths of people in India, in Indonesia, in Africa. But fig trees also have a, a much wider cultural significance. So often they're places of prayer. They're thought to be where the spirits dwell, um, places where you can go and worship dead ancestors. All across the tropics, essentially, Africa, Latin America, into Asia and the Pacific, there are stories that cultures have developed about these trees. They're, they're deeply rooted stories. And often people have got taboos against cutting these trees down. Well, I I was uh, very surprised to learn that uh, the Bodhi tree, uh, under which Buddha is said to have sat and until he reached enlightenment, is also a fig tree. That seemed very similar to the Garden of Eden story to me. How do you understand that similarity? Um. Well, I would say that that's a less similar to the Garden of Eden than some of the other stories. So, you know, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve dressed themselves with the fig leaves. There's a story from Persia of, of uh, a god called Mithra who was born out of a rock naked and alongside a, a sacred fig tree. He also used leaves of the fig to, to dress himself. And there's a story from Africa where the first hunter was born from a fig tree and and made his clothing from its bark. So these stories are, are interesting in their parallels. The, the connections with other cultures are also interesting because of the, the idea of a tree of knowledge or a tree of a tree of life. And in the case of the Buddha, he was sitting under a, a kind of tree that scientists call ficus religiosa. And the clue is in the name. It's it's a sacred tree, not just to Buddhists, but also to Hindus and to people who lived thousands and thousands of years ago, long before the birth of either Buddhism or Hinduism. Back in the uh, the Indus Valley civilization, these these people were living four or five thousand years ago. They they held the ficus religiosa to be sacred too. So Buddha was using a tree that had already been sacred in that area for thousands of years. Uh, and you also note that there, the secular scientific myth, if we can call it that, of Darwinian evolution uh, also involves the fig tree. Uh, tell us about Arthur Russell Wallace and Darwin. Well, Wallace is the is the lesser known of the two, but they both came up with the theory of evolution by natural selection at more or less the same time, independently of each other. It was in the 1850s that Wallace went off to Southeast Asia and began wandering around the various islands of the Malay archipelago. And as he was there, he he saw many, many strangler, strangler figs, which he called the most extraordinary trees of the forest. And they helped him to think about the idea of a struggle for existence. And um, they helped him to come up with his ideas about how plants and animal species can evolve under pressures in their environment, which he, we call now natural selection. And, and Wallace had both a uh, scientific and a spiritual view of evolution, if I understood your writing correctly. Is that right? Um, yes, in terms of the science, he, he, he was the, 
he, he was taking what he saw in front of his eyes and and trying to work out what it all meant. But he also felt that when you walk in a forest, you get something deeply spiritual happening to you. And anybody who's ever walked in a tropical rainforest will will know this experience. When when you walk in a place where you are surrounded in every dimension by this throbbing sense of life and huge trees, which are sometimes 80 meters tall in Southeast Asia, and the the sound and the, the, the vision of greens, many, 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 many types of green, all of that experience together can can create a sense of awe. And Wallace certainly felt it. I've felt it. Many people I know who've worked in forests have felt this sensation. And I think if everybody knew this sensation, they would seek it out. And we might not have so many problems in uh, the state of the world's forests. That's true. And it, and it isn't just uh, tropical rainforests. One can feel that way um, in the redwood forests in California, those towering trees or 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 other kinds of settings where nature reminds you that there's more to life than our short little time on this earth. Um, the, the ficus religiosa, um, its value shifted from material to symbolic and the sacred. Uh, can you explain that to us a little bit? Well, if you go back, back, back in time, if we had a time machine, we we would be able to go back to a, a time when people were living in forests, and something like a big strangler fig would be a source of food. It would be a source of materials. It would be a source of medicines, and uh, it would also be eventually people began to see these things as things worthy of worship, and. Uh, partly because of their awe-inspiring appearance, the, the strangler figs are really something incredible to behold because they start out life high in the top of another tree and then send roots down that tree, eventually encasing it and replacing it. Um, they can grow into massive, massive structures that um, certainly inspire awe when you see them. Since those days, the, the ficus religiosa has become embedded into genuine organized religions, but it's also still used by many people as a source of medicine and and other products. Hmm. That, that is interesting. So it's the drama of life and, uh, and also healing. Uh, and many of the stories you tell in the book are very dramatic. One in particular stands out, uh, the, uh, the fig wasp. Talk about that story. Well, everything to do with the, the, the majesty and the, the importance of fig trees essentially comes down to the relationship that they have with tiny, tiny little wasps. Um, we'll take a step back and explain what a fig actually is. Many people think it's a fruit, but it's not. In fact, it's a, it's a ball. And inside that ball, that hollow ball, you find hundreds of flowers. So the fig trees keep their flowers hidden away. You don't see them. They're inside the ball, and they can only be pollinated by tiny little wasps. And in most fig species, it's just one or two of these fig wasps that can do that job. And those wasps can only do their own breeding inside their partner fig species. So you have a very tight little relationship going on between the two of them. And this has been happening for 80 million years. So the 
the fig-fig-wasp relationship is not only one of the tightest in nature, it's one of the oldest. And what this means for everything else in the, in the environment is that figs are available all year round in tropical forests and many other ecosystems because the tiny wasps that go inside the fig to lay their eggs only have a lifespan of one or two days and they have to find a fig that's ready to receive them in that time. That means that after they've gone inside and pollinated the flowers and laid their eggs, those figs will ripen a bit later on. And also a new generation of wasps will emerge from within the fig and go off and carry pollen to their uh, to the figs that they want to lay their own eggs into. It's, it's a, a drama, a life and death drama in a very tight time frame. Uh, and, and on top of all of that, the female uh, whose life is only two days long uh, never eats and is tiny, 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 wings thinner than a human hair, you write. It's, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, they have a hell of a life, really, because they, they emerge inside a fig, having been impregnated whilst in there by male fig wasps, which, which don't have wings and never go anywhere in their lives. So the female emerges. She's already got uh, a load of eggs inside her, ready to go and lay inside flowers of another fig tree. She has to come out of the fig in which she's born. Often this will be uh, through a tunnel that has been chewed by the male wasps, and off she flies. But she's she's got, um, as you say, tiny wings and uh, a very frail body. So she she has to get up into the high. Uh, high above the tree level, and and the wind carries her then. So a fig wasp can travel 160 kilometers carrying pollen and her eggs, and it's only when she smells, uh, for want of a better word, uh, the uh, the the perfume, the the aroma coming from her partner fig species that she will drop out of the sky and then use her wings to flap towards the fig tree that she wants to lay her eggs in. So each of the fig species produces its own cocktail of chemicals that attracts just the right fig wasps. That's amazing. Uh, and and figs or ficus, uh, they, they're an extremely diverse species. Uh, but everywhere they they grow, they're keystones from the Amazon rainforest to sub-Saharan Africa. Um, they, they're always the keystone plant or a tree. Um, now, you call one of the species, uh, you get, gave it the adorable name of the pop-up restaurants of the rainforest. Tell us about them. Yeah, most people are familiar with the, the, the fig that we eat and we can buy in the supermarkets, and, and that one is called Ficus carica. But there are hundreds of other fig species that grow wild around the world, more than 800 of them. And in rainforests especially, because of their relationship with the, with the fig wasps, there are always some ripe figs available at different times of the year. Most other plants that produce fruits do so at a specific time of the year, and often it's all at the same time for different species. So if you're a fruit-eating animal, a bird or a monkey or a fruit bat, for most of the year, there's not much available except for figs. And that means that when a strangler fig suddenly bursts, uh, produces its figs and they, they ripen, 
so many animals will come from around to come and join the feast there. And you can have dozens of different species all in the same tree at once, all feeding. And for a few days, they'll have their feast and then the figs will be gone. But somewhere across the way in a, in a nearby patch of the forest, another strangler fig will do the same thing. And so the feast will move there. So they pop up, they go down. Another one pops up, it goes down. And they've been called keystone species because if they were absent, so many of these animals wouldn't have enough food to eat most of the year. And those animals would starve and die. And thousands of species of plants that those animals disperse the seeds of would then lose their seed dispersal service. So really for the system to work, you need not only the fig tree, but all of the life that comes to feed on it, insects, birds, predators, and prey. You you have the whole uh, drama of various kinds of life supporting each other on the basis of the fig tree. Yes, everything's connected. And you know, we know this in, in when you when you study ecology, you you learn very quickly that everything is connected. And some things are, are more connected than others, though, and some things are particularly important, even if they aren't very numerous. So the, the strangler figs especially and some of the other fig species are disproportionately important in keeping that whole system all together. And speaking of systems, it uh, brings us to a, a very important concern we have today, or we should have, uh, which is climate change. Uh, we there's a great deal of concern about the rate of species extinction, destruction of the rainforests, and it's generally believed, conventional wisdom is, that tropical rainforests, once destroyed, are lost forever. But you have a counter point of view to that. Yes, there's no such thing as, as gone forever, I think, yet. I think we can still do a lot of saving and restoring rainforests. And fig trees have got a role to play in this too. One of the uh, interesting things that we've found while studying on uh, what happens to volcanoes when they blow up in the tropics and destroy all of the life there is that as things recover, as plants start returning, it's often the fig trees that come back first and that they can germinate in in bare lava even. So when we've studied rain, uh, rainforest regeneration on volcanoes, we see that once the figs come back and start producing figs that attract seed dispersing animals, the rainforest can recover. Now people are using this as a, an approach for kickstarting rainforest regeneration in areas that have been logged or that have been uh, turned into agricultural land. And by planting out fig trees in different areas, they can encourage more and more pl uh, plants to, to come and colonize an area more rapidly. Now, that point of view is not just theoretical. Um, you write about the work of Thailand's forest re restoration team uh, and their successes, which are very encouraging. Tell us about that. Yes, in Thailand, they, they were working in a national park where um, some people who, who had been living in that area for a long time happened to be also living in the area that is now a national park. And so you have competing land uses. Villagers have been using the land for agriculture, um, but the government wanted to ensure that there was some more 
forest growing there. So working together with the villagers, they've been planting out fig trees and encouraging rainforest regeneration. But it's very tricky to do that in uh, areas that are very steep and and it involves carrying tree saplings up into remote areas. So they've been experimenting now with using drones to fly out over hard to reach areas and drop seeds of figs that are, that have a little hydrating gel with them to get them started in life. So they're doing that there in Thailand. They've used figs to uh, regenerate forests in Australia. And in Costa Rica, they have a different technique entirely where some researchers have been chopping large branches off existing strangler figs. So taking a branch that is about two or four meters long and then sticking it in the ground as an instant tree. And they found that within just a year or two, those instant trees are producing figs and attracting birds and bats and monkeys and other creatures to come and disperse more seeds of more plants to help the rainforest recover. That's fabulous. Uh, is there a political problem with uh, encouraging the widespread uh, imitation of these programs? Uh, there's not really a political problem. No, there's there's actually a, a massive increase in attention to rainforest regeneration now. Uh, the United Nations from January onwards is launching a decade of uh, regeneration and reforestation programs. We realize increasingly around the world that we need more forests to suck up more carbon from the atmosphere. And so we're going to see lots of efforts to increase forest cover in many different areas. So there are many different techniques for this and fig trees are part of that solution. And uh, is it important, and if it is, tell us why, for both the scientists, uh, religious community, as well as local indigenous people to work on these ecological environmental projects together? Yes, it's always important for people to come together and and work work on these on these things as a in a collaborative way because people have got different priorities. You have scientists who who can be very clear about uh, numerical things we need to do, like we need to increase the stock of carbon in the forest or we need to increase the area of forest. But if people are living in that area, they have different needs. They might need to chop some wood down to to build. Uh, houses or they might need to use some wood for fuel and so you, you can't you can't have one without the other but the, the benefits of using figs in in these sorts of approaches is that all around the world in the countries that most need to increase their forest you have existing systems of culture and belief that hold fig trees in high regard so they're a ready-made um, ideal candidate to to form the centerpiece of forest restoration programs because people already have strong connections to them culturally and strong connections to them as as providers of materials and medicines and and other values and also all all around the tropics especially there are many many cultures that have got deep rooted taboos against chopping down fig trees specifically ah okay well that's that's very helpful uh, because sometimes in the popular press, when they write about uh, issues about the rainforest, there seems to be antagonism between the needs of the local people to do their own subsistence farming or, as you say, use the, use the trees for fuel uh, 
uh, and the scientists and environmentalists who want to preserve and replenish it. So I'm glad to hear that fig trees are the bridge between them. So, and, and finally, given that you have traveled so widely in rainforests, do you have a favorite? Is there some place that you just love to go back to and feel specially connected to? Strangely enough, I have got a, a place that I'm a bit concerned about going back to, and, and it's the it's the place where I studied for my doctoral research, and spent a lot of time in the forest there, and definitely it changed me and changed my life. But I know that in the twenty years since then, that so much has has gone from the forest. So many of the wildlife species have have been hunted out, and. Uh, uh, a walk in that forest won't be what it was just 20 years later and I'm, I'm I would be wary of going back and, and having my heart broken to be honest because I know that everything I experienced 20 years ago is is gone the the large mammals have disappeared the large birds have disappeared and it was already happening while I was there but from from what I know from research that's been published since is that it's it's a much more depauperate community of wildlife there so i would be wary about going back there um for very personal reasons of course if someone said to me tomorrow do you want to go i'd be yeah okay <laughs> i'll go for sure but but i have uh, i have a, a, such a deep emotional connection to that place that i'd be slightly nervous about what i would find and what i would not find yeah, that's uh, that's understandable, and and are you saying that with so many species extinction or loss to an area, it's too far gone to build back up to the way you remember it? No, it's not too far gone yet, and uh, that's the key thing. Is yet there the, there will become a time when it's too far gone. But nature's extreme, extremely resilient, and when given a chance, it, it can bounce back. And we know this from uh, various bird species around the world that have have been hunted to the extent that there's only been dozen of them left, or, or a smaller number of, of breeding pairs. And through captive breeding programs, these species have been rescued. So, with effort, these things can happen. But the the, the ways that forests are managed needs to be really inclusive of not just thinking about the wood and the trees and the carbon, but it needs to be thinking about protecting the wildlife, making sure that the seed dispersers are fulfilling their ecological functions, limiting hunting, um, doing things in a way that is actually going to work and brings along the local people who have been using forests for generations and, uh, Bringing, bringing through their knowledge and wisdom about how to manage forests sustainably. Well, Mike, I've always liked the taste of figs, but you've given us a whole new perspective on them. And you've also given us a, a great deal to think about. Uh, before I let you go, tell us what you're working on now. Well, these days I'm, I'm mostly working as a as a freelance consultant working with researchers and non-governmental organizations that are focused on protecting the world's forests and uh, protecting biodiversity and trying to limit climate change. So some of this work involves uh, 
communications work. Some of it involves working to support journalists and encouraging greater coverage of issues like biodiversity loss and the illegal wildlife trade. And from your broad perspective, should we be optimistic or not? I think we have to be, but we have to, everybody has to pull their fingers out and get involved. If you if you think about the scale of the problems that we face and the time frame that we have to fix them, there's, there's no time for sitting on our hands. And I know that there's a, an awful lot of people and a growing number of people that are trying their hardest to raise awareness of these issues, to put pressure on governments and on the private sector to sort their acts out and realize that we live on a living planet and that we're part of nature as much as 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 it, as, uh, as anything else on this planet. Um, there are too many people who are just idly sitting by and not doing anything, waiting for someone else to save the day or pretending that this doesn't matter. And they are as much of a problem, I think, as the as the big polluters and and the the governments that are not doing anything. We we've got a very narrowing time frame with which to solve these things. But I have a seven-year-old son. He could be in the first generation that sees wildlife bouncing back around the world. He could be in the first generation that sees forest cover increasing in the tropics. He could be in the first generation that sees the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere falling for the first time in decades and decades and decades. So this is where I see there is hope and where there is optimism. There's a chance now to turn things around. It's a very small window we have, but we've got to all get involved and do it. Is there a particular way uh, our listeners could get involved? Well, if you want to find out how to solve the problems of climate change and biodiversity, often you will be directed to uh, advice that is how to change your lifestyle and small acts that you can do. And while that's all, all important, some of the most important things are actually talking about it to other people so that this conversation becomes broader and that people realize that this is actually a, a very high priority. But it's collective action, really, that is going to change things. And that means not just limiting it to how you live and your lifestyle choices and your dietary choices, but going that next step and putting pressure on politicians, joining campaigning organizations, taking to the streets when there's a protest, if there's a protest, going at, joining groups of other people and working together. So it, it's not about individuals. That's uh, that's not going to save the day. It's about us coming together in groups and putting pressure on the spots where where we can make a change. It means punching up as well, not just not just not just changing our own ways. Right. Not, right. I understand that because that demonstrates political will. If you uh, if you have lots of people talking about it and promoting it and going to demonstrations about it. And in this pandemic time, I think we're all, or we should be, we're all easily convinced that everything is connected, that uh, we can't just take care of our own little square on the chessboard, but uh, we're influenced and affected by everything else, every other species. Uh, we need them. So, well, I, I have to thank you for your important work and thank you for being on the show today.
and uh, we'll do our best to promote the reforestation and the protection of the environment. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks, Renee. It's been really nice talking to you. I've enjoyed it as well. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.